All right, well, good morning, Midtown. Good to see you guys this morning. Thanks for making your uh, trek back to Baker Center. Okay, true confessions. How many of you went to Lee before you showed up here? Anyone? All right, we've got two or three, so that's pretty good. Good job, guys. Uh, it's really fun to be back here, grateful for God's provision for us. Uh, my name is Justin, one of the associate pastors here, and just want to welcome you, particularly if you're new to Midtown and this happens to maybe be your first Sunday or a friend maybe brought you. I uh, just want to expend a, a special encouragement to you and thank you for being here and joining us. Um, wanted to draw a couple little family announcements before we get into our sermon today. I think in the, in the back we've got a little Hudson, little Hudson right there, right? Courtney and Bailey, so... Yeah, Hudson's come a few times, so make sure you say hi to him. Yeah, congrats, guys. We're really happy for you. Um, and then uh, Kane and Jessica, they got engaged about a month ago, but we've not been able to recognize them. So say thanks and congrats to them. Yeah, I think last time they were here was Easter Sunday, and it was kind of a packed day. And then, of course, we'll also mention there, there's this dude named Tori in the back that's just joining us again. It's been a while for Tori, so good to see you, man. Look forward to hanging out today. Um, we're going to jump back into, our, into the book of Acts, and we've been going through kind of chapters 6 through 12 during this season. If you were with us in the fall, we did Acts 1 through 5, which is really the story of how the gospel started in Jerusalem, and ultimately at the end of chapter 5, the, the apostles are being accused of filling all of Jerusalem with their teaching. So everyone in Jerusalem had heard the gospel. And so now in chapter 6 and 7 was the, the persecution started to take place with the stoning of Stephen. And then from then, the gospel went out to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so that's what we're doing these next couple months as we wrap up the book of Acts. We're looking at how it went from Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so that's the main theme throughout what we'll be studying this summer. But there's a secondary theme that we're going to start to see unfold a little bit every single week as we go through it. And that's that the Christianity starts to distinguish itself from Judaism. And so time and time again, like Jake taught last week through Acts chapter 10, it becomes really clear that the gospel is meant for everyone, that everyone can put their faith in Christ, the Jews and the Greeks. And today we're actually going to see for the first time the conversions of those who had no Jewish background whatsoever. And so now we're really getting a clear picture that the gospel is for everybody, and this is good news for Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then what's going to happen through the rest of the book of Acts is they're starting to wrestle with what does this mean theologically, and a new kind of Christian theology emerges, and the people actually begin to distinguish themselves as not being kind of a side sect of Judaism, but now they're actually the sect called Christianity. In fact, today what we're going to read in the, in, uh, the story of the gospel going to Antioch is it says they were first called Christians in Antioch. It's this very first place where they're saying, you know what, this is different from Judaism. This is a distinct movement of people that believe in this risen Savior. So we're going to have a great time doing that. Let me ask a question before we get started, though. How many of you guys like, like, crime shows? You know, like the, the things where there's the detectives trying to figure it out. We all like it, right, because there's a million of them on TV. They're obviously successful, right? Like, how many CSIs can there be? And so, so we all love it, right? So here's what I want you to do. Today, we're going to have a little experiment. You're going to put your little detective cat on, okay? So you're going to be a detective. And as a detective... If I was to drop you into another country and you'd have one task, I want you to tell me whether there's a genuine followers, genuine followers of Jesus in this place. Like you're just parachuted into some unknown place and you're tasked with, tell me, are there genuine followers of Christ in this place? So what would you look for? What questions would you ask? What would you try to observe? What would, what would be the key evidences that would make you say, yes, indeed, this has happened? 
If you got to pull someone aside and interview them, what questions would you ask that would be the key ones that would make you say, yeah, this guy is a genuine believer. This woman is a genuine follower of Christ. Or maybe you don't even speak the same language, so you can't actually ask the questions. You've just got to sit back and actually watch and observe what things would stand out to make you say, yep, these people do love and follow Jesus. If I can maybe ask the question a different way, what if someone was to pop into Midtown and they're the investigators and they're actually getting to know some of us and they're worshiping with us and they're joining our Midtown communities? What would be the evidences for them to be able to look at us and say, you know what, these people really love Jesus and there's something distinct about them. They really do follow this person, Jesus. Or what if they were to join like your house and hang out with you and your roommates or if they were to live with your family and see the way that you raise your kids, what would be the distinctives that would make them say, yeah, these people at Midtown, they really do love and follow Jesus? Or maybe put one last way, what is a reasonable expectation for us to see among people who are sincerely following Jesus? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at this story. It's really great because something starts to happen in the city of Antioch. And the, and the apostles back in Jerusalem hear about it, and they tell, they tell Barnabas, like, hey, we're tasking you to go be that guy. You're the one that's parachuted in, and we want you to report back to us what is really happening here, and is this truly a movement of God? Are these people following Jesus? So that's what we're going to look at, and I hope we'll kind of look at it through two lens, seeing what Barnabas did, but thinking, too, reflecting back on us, and is this reflective of who we are? And I'll tell you right now, it is, and so be encouraged. Let me pray first. Father, we thank you for what you are doing at Midtown Church. Even us, just a small band of people uh, you're using to do great things. And so give us encouragement today and also remind us of, of the type of people that we're supposed to be growing to become so that we do give off the evidence of your grace among us. Ask, Lord, that your word would speak for itself and your Holy Spirit would speak to each individual. Um, somehow use these, these words in a short time in each person's life, in Jesus' name. Amen. Evidence number one. Evidence number one is that people believe in the gospel of grace. Pretty simple. Acts chapter 11, we'll read. It says, Now those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyrus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was on them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. I love this first sentence here when it says that they were scattered by the persecution. If you were to go back to Acts chapter 8, it's almost the exact same sentence, that because of this persecution that happened, families and these believers that had been walking with God and filled all of Jerusalem with their teaching, now they're actually starting to migrate just for their own family safety. And they land themselves in, in Judea and Samaria. Now you see that some of them are going as far as Phoenicia, which would be North Africa. We've got Cyrus, which is Cyprus, which is like a little island. I think we have a little map here, island that they were going to. And then some went as far as Antioch, 300-mile journey. And they're scattering. And as they're scattering, God's using them to share the gospel with tons of the people in these different places. You can see kind of how, how they uh, made their track up that way. But Antioch was actually a really particular city. It was the third largest city in Rome. So it was kind of there making a track, not from small cities, but to this giant metropolis with tons of different, different belief systems and all kinds of different people. And so what we're going to find here is we have the actual first cross-cultural missionaries for the first time. If you go back to verse 20, 
or at the end of 19, it says, some went only to the Jews. But what's unique in verse 20, some of them have, or these guys that were from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also. Now, we have seen some Gentiles put their faith in Christ, but when we see Judea and Samaria, they're a little bit different because Judeans and Samarians were like, they were half Jewish. So, they were ethnically Jewish related to Judaism. Even the Ethiopian eunuch, remember in Acts chapter 8 when the Ethiopian, so this was a Gentile guy who put his faith in Christ, but what happened with him was he was actually returning from the temple. So, even though he was Gentile, he was actually going to the temple and worshiping. So, he was more Jewish than he was just a godless or a polytheistic Greek. And the same is true of Cornelius. When we read that last week, Cornelius was a man that said he, he was very God-fearing. He had respect and he thought favorably toward Judaism, considered himself more Jewish than polytheist or godless. But now, now we have the first cross-culture missionaries who are actually going themselves to the people who would be godless, who weren't seeing the, the gospel through the lens of Judaism. So the gospel is going to be presented differently to them, and we'll see that as it plays out throughout the rest of the book of Acts. I want to point out one thing before we get more, talking more about the evidence here, and that's that I love this, that it says that they were just people who had been scattered by the persecution. As we read through the, the whole book of Acts, we're going to see lots of key characters, and in, in fact, the next verses we're going to read, we're going to read about Barnabas and Paul, two of the main characters, and there's, there are the apostles that we see throughout Acts, but I love when you get these little glimpses of the nameless people, like it doesn't tell you who they are. They're just the people who are scattered. And I take some encouragement in that because that's kind of how I think of myself. <laughs> and I think probably how you might think of yourself, that we're not some powerful Paul or some powerful Barnabas. But these were just the everyday Joes, the everyday people that were going as they were trying to flee their persecution. And all the while, these normal people were sharing the good news about Jesus with all that they came in contact with. And some were so bold as to actually step out and share this good news with those cross-culturally who weren't seeing, at least identifying closely through Judaism. They took this step of faith. And I love that it says that they were scattered because you guys hear us talk about this a lot at Midtown. This is Sunday morning. I call this like, this is the church gathered. But we all realize that we've got about an hour and a half or so as the church gathered and maybe more when you consider our Midtown communities and a few of the other things that we do together. But think about it. The large bulk of our time, right, is where the church scattered throughout the city. We've all got different jobs. We, we live in different places. We all study different things. We all have different hobbies and places. I call it where we live, work, or play. And that's the church scattered, and that's the beauty of what God wants to use is normal people, you guys in the context of your lives with your friends and your workplaces and your peers and your activities, that's the church scattered, and that's who God wants to use just as he did these first century believers. So back to the question at hand with your, with your cap on. What's the evidence? It's right there in verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. That's the evidence. And what should we attempt to see or what should we be seeing as normal Christianity, even within our church? We should see people who aren't following Jesus begin to follow Jesus with us. That doesn't mean everybody is going to, but it means that many should. And this should be a normal part of what we would witness if we were to be parachuted into another place. We'd find evidence that people are actually believing the good news. I think back to my story. I don't know if I've told my story too much here, but... I didn't grow up in a Christian home, somewhat of a God-fearing home with my parents who spoke about God, but we never really went to church or anything like that. Um, 
A couple really bad things happened to me in middle school, the first of which is middle school. Like, that's, that's bad enough by itself, but it's complicated even worse when, like, your parents get divorced and your best friend moves away and you don't make the football team. Like, those things really complicate stuff. And I remember that time in my life just having a real search for identity. Uh, I was really trying to find love and acceptance by somebody, and I just couldn't find it anywhere. I was also equally trying to find, like, purpose and meaning, something that was worth living for or would give my life uh, some sort of purpose. And I ended up kind of running with the wrong group of crowds and trying to find love and acceptance in the wrong places and spent about two years on, on the border of like doing some really troubling things. In fact, that when I went to my 20-year um, high school reunion, some of the guys that I was running with are, were in prison. And I was like, man, that could have totally, totally been me. I'd been caught by the cops doing several things multiple times. And about that time, I was approached by this guy. It's a long story, but a guy came to our football team and basically asked if anyone wanted to be part of a Bible study, and I have no idea why I said yes, but I said yes. And for about three months, I actually started reading the Bible with a group of guys and, and started finding within this community like a different kind of love and acceptance that I wasn't experiencing with these friends that were really more abusing me and really didn't care for me truly. Somehow I got talked into going to a conference in the uh, YMCA of the Rockies in Estes Park. There at that conference, the first three days I hated it. I was like, oh my gosh, why am I here? This is the worst. And and then something happened on one night where a guy was speaking and he really clearly explained the gospel that Jesus loves us so much that he died on the cross to pay for our sins. He rose from the dead to give us new life. And if we put our faith in him, we could have this life that's full of meaning and purpose. And I just, something stirred in my heart and I responded. And I remember like the next day after the conference ended, just being compelled to go tell other people. Like I'm like, I've got to go tell this now to my brother and my, my family and, and then my football team. And we got back from the conference, I was telling this to the guy that was actually a, a much older man that was discipling me at that time, and I said, I feel like i got to tell this. And he's like, yeah, you're right, you do. Like, this is normal. So what I want you to do is I want you just to make a list of the people that you'd like to talk to about your, about your new faith, and then let's just start praying for them. And then over the course of the next, you know, couple months, let's just invite them to lunch, and let's ask them to tell us their spiritual story, and then let's ask if we can tell our spiritual story and give you a chance to, to just be a witness and tell what God's done for you. And over the course of my high school years, we did that probably dozens and dozens of times, and several of, my, several of my friends said yes and started following Jesus with us. Many more said no, and I loved them just the same. But this is what I experienced early on as like normal Christianity. Like we should be compelled to go share our story with people. I want to take a step back to be honest about something that there may be some of you here who, who hear that and think like, well, that sounds like you're kind of trying to proselytize or change or you're, you're trying to coerce people to do something. I just want to say that if you've experienced that, I, I really apologize for that and I, and I feel for you in that because I don't believe that's what we're actually called to do. Because if you go back to Acts chapter 1, it's kind of the theme verse for the whole book of Acts, what does it say? He said that you'll receive power from the Spirit to be what? Witnesses. What does a witness do? All a witness does is tells what they've seen and heard, right? Think about it get your court cap back on, like you're just presenting evidence. Here's what I've seen. Here's what I've seen God do. That's what a witness does. A witness doesn't use coercion. A witness doesn't manipulate. And we're not called to, believers speaking to you now, as you do share your story with others, you're not called to try to manipulate anyone. You're just called to give witness to what God has done in you, to give witness to the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and then love people no matter how they respond to it. That's what God's called us to do. In fact, uh, I learned this one definition that I found particularly helpful when it comes to successful witnessing. 
This is what the guy who led me to faith actually told me. He said, successful witnessing is just taking the initiative by the power of the Holy Spirit to share the gospel and leave the results to God. Like the results are God's, but we're just supposed to take the initiative and, and tell our story. And if people believe, that's great. If people don't, we love them just the same. In fact, I think we might have to go back a slide, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I love the way that Paul tells the people how he lived. He said, rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We actually renounce manipulation. We renounce trying to bully people into anything. But we just proclaim the truth testament. We just proclaim the truth plainly, just telling our story and telling God's story and giving people freedom to respond however they will. And I hope that at Midtown, we would be a place where you, if you're not yet following Jesus, experience that. If you haven't experienced that, I'd love to talk to you about that and hear more so that we can become more that kind of a community. But I'd like to say that I feel like we are, and I want to commend you guys for being that way. This is the truth, that not only people share the gospel, but the main evidence was that people actually believed the gospel and responded to it. And we did some kind of uh, research recently. We were just trying to look maybe like a, a little bit kind of demographically into our church. And I was really encouraged to find these two things, that in Midtown Church, 11% of our people, closer to 12% of our people, have actually put their faith in Christ through the means of Midtown Church. That's pretty encouraging, right? That we've got around 11 or 12% of people who said yes to Jesus, have followed him as a result of us normal people scattered in our different classes and workplaces. And then 24% of our people actually began following Christ again because they were from an unchurched background. So like literally about a quarter of the people at our church weren't walking consistently with God at that time. They may have put their faith in Christ sometime earlier, but at the time that they connected with someone at Midtown, they weren't connected to a church, they weren't pursuing God. That's a quarter of our church. And so I just want to say, if this is an evidence, one evidence that they would look to is that people believed, I want to commend us and say, it's happening among us, so be encouraged. Second evidence. Second evidence is that people are changed by the gospel of grace. We read again in Acts 11, picking up in verse 22. Now, of this <clears throat> news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. A great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Let me tell you just a little bit about this Barnabas guy, because I think this is interesting. Like, one of the things that you see time and time again in Acts is when someone has some sort of experience, the church actually sends people to verify. You remember when Saul, there was Ananias, that when Saul uh, had his vision and Ananias was sent to go verify and see what happened. Peter did the same with Cornelius in a different way just last week when we studied it. And now they picked Barnabas to go do the same thing in Antioch. A few things that we know about Barnabas, well, one might be that he was actually, it says in uh, Acts chapter 4 that he was from Cyrus. So there was the people that went actually to go speak with the Jews. Remember, it said it was from some from Cyrus and some from Cyrene. So maybe it was just that he was from there and they sent him, but I think it was much more than that. Like it even says here of Barnabas, his character, that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. 
Elsewhere in Acts chapter 4, we know that he has this nickname, that he's the son of encouragement. And so when you're asking the question, like, who would they wanted to send to go actually investigate and see what happened, I think that they thought, let's send the most gracious person that we have, someone who's not quick to make judgments, someone who will really look at this and, and, and try to reason with them and understand what's happening, someone who actually sees the best in people. You see that a lot in Barnabas. We're not going to get to talk about it, but later as we go through Acts, Barnabas and Paul actually have a disagreement, and part of it is that Barnabas actually sees the best in people. And so what a perfect guy to go send, to check out this new movement and see, like, is there actual evidence? Are these people following Jesus like we are in Jerusalem? And he sends them to them. But one of the things I love here, too, is not only is he the first to go there, he's actually the first to go to Saul, the guy who had been persecuting the church. If you remember in Acts chapter 9, Saul, when he first has his vision and, and God gets him and he puts his faith in Christ, Ananias meets with him. And then we learn kind of through, if you read like Acts and Galatians 1 and 2, you find out that then there was a time when Paul went back to Jerusalem after his conversion, and, the, and it says that the apostles there gave him the right hand of fellowship, and they told him, you go to the Gentiles, we'll stay here. And so then Paul went back to Tarsus. So Paul has been doing ministry in Tarsus. But now what I love is this guy Barnabas, who sees the best in people, thinks, you know who I need to come help me minister to these people in Antioch? I've got to go get this guy that used to persecute the church. Like, that's the guy that we need. And he would take this journey all the way over there to go find him and believe in him and bring him back. It's kind of a silly pun, but we've, we've kind of used it recently. It's this whole idea of I see in you. Like one of the things that, that, that Paul, uh, Barnabas was great at was I see in you, Saul. I see in you something. I see that God can use you and what you've been doing there in Tarsus. Now we need to use you here. And he'd be such a son of encouragement that he would go to someone like that and say, hey, I want to minister with you. And here's what I think was really happening. It's kind of implied. It doesn't say specifically. But I believe what was really happening was that Barnabas now was discipling Saul. And the two of them working together for a year while they're teaching, Barnabas is mentoring and raising up this guy Saul, which I really love because one of the things that happens as, you, as we go through reading Acts, one of the kind of things that happens in the Greek language when they would list people, they'll often list like the leader first. And so you'll see kind of as you go through Acts, it's Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. But later in the book of Acts, you're going to see it switch when Saul gets his name changed to Paul, and then you see Paul and Barnabas. And the real implication there was actually Paul's mantle of authority, Paul's influence grows greater than that of Barnabas. And I love it that this is a guy who would take someone in, work with him for a year, knowing that he could even be greater and have greater influence and not be bothered by that at all. So there's several things that are happening. Here's Saul, that's, or here's Barnabas that's discipling Saul, and together they're discipling this young church in Antioch. Now, what was the evidence that they see? I love these two phrases, wonderful phrases. It says that they saw the grace of God, they saw what the grace of God had done. So meaning Barnabas, when he had his little investigation cap on, he looks at it and he sees what God's doing among them. But it's not only Barnabas who sees it, it's the people of Antioch that see it. Because they're the first ones to say, these people are different. This is, this is something we're going to call Christianity. There's something different among these people that now the outsiders are seeing it. So the insiders see it. The outsiders see it. And this is very different from just believing. Like it was true, like the first point I said, they believe the gospel. Believing, you can actually interview someone, right? Like, tell me what you believe. What, what was the, the time that you actually made this decision to follow Jesus? What's happening? But this is far beyond just something that you can interview and ask. This is a, this is a witnessing. 
It's Barnabas looking at these people and saying, there's something that's happening here that gives evidence that God is at work among them, and their lives are changing. I try to think of a list of what some of those changes might be for them or might be for us, and you could probably list like hundreds of things, right? But let me just mention a few to get our juices flowing, thinking. One evidence I think would be vulnerability, that I would hope that among Christians there would be this increased level of vulnerability, that we can take off our masks and be real with each other, confess our sins, talk about our doubts, say where we're struggling, and minister and help each other and receive each other with grace. Like that's a distinctly Christian thing. I think about forgiveness. I think about we who've experienced the forgiveness of Christ. Jesus said so many times, like, if, if you've been forgiven, you must forgive others. It should be as we experience more of it that we're just the most forgiving people, that when our friends, or our family, or our people hurt us, there's such a grace among us to constantly forgive that it stands out. People say there's something different about them. I think about selflessness with our time, with our money, that we would give ourselves and give our time and give our money to other things that doesn't actually benefit us in any way. That would be a marker. I think about speech. I think about the things that we say and how we encourage one another, like Paul would write in Ephesians, to let no word come out of our mouth except what helps build others up, that there wouldn't be gossip or slander among us, there wouldn't be any filthy speech among us, that there'd just be this purity in how we talk to one another. I think about our relationships, dating, marriage, sexuality, that we would embrace just a completely different ethic than the rest of the world, that people would look at us and say, that's strange. They might be Christians. And I think, of course, number one, of love. Jesus said it very, very clearly to his disciples. They'll know you're my followers by your love, by how you love one another. should be our primary distinctive. So I have to feel like I have to take a step back to say, that it's possible that some of you in here, particularly if you're not yet following Jesus, maybe you've not experienced that. Maybe you've experienced quite the opposite from Christians. And for that, I would just express my regrets and apologies, and I would love to hear more of your story if that has happened. And, and that is regretful. I've experienced some of that myself too, and I think that sometimes I'm actually tempted to say, since we have our evidence cap on, I don't think those people are believers the way that they're acting. But I'd hope that you would find, as you get to know us better, through just a personal relationship with someone, something different, something that is truly like was just described, primarily identifying itself with love. And I want to remind us all, both you who may be questioning and saying, no, I've experienced different, or maybe even you in the church as Christians who maybe experienced something different, one thing we have to remember is we all come from a different starting place. Like God's work in us that we're not trying to say that you have to be doing all of these things perfectly because we all come from a very different starting place. Some of us grew up in like really healthy homes, and so this vulnerability or forgiveness or selflessness, we're more prone to do it, even if we come to faith at a different age. And others of us have had horrible and tragic experiences in our lives that put us at a spot where our Christian development is much more difficult, which is why we should rejoice in someone that goes from here to here just as much as we start with someone who started here and has now moved to here. And we'd all do well to remember that we all come from different starting places. This last week when I was volunteering at uh, Helping Hand Home, a lot of us serve at this uh, foster care just, just right down the street here, and uh, I'm kind of sitting down talking with this one boy. They were basically trying to distract him from things that were helping elsewhere in the room, and there's this nine-year-old boy that has, he's so angry, and it's just the, the most vile language and the way that he's treating staff and the things that he's saying staff, a nine-year-old shouldn't know how to say those things. And you just sit there while you're 
playing with this boy and you just have to remind yourself like, man, this guy's got the cards stacked against him. And you pray and you, and you know that if God was to do something in his life, it's going to take time because it takes time for God to grow us to be this type of people. So yes, we should experience this change of life. That's an evidence for sure. But why was it that Paul and Saul, I mean Saul and Barnabas, had to minister for a whole year with these people? Because our lives change slowly. And I want to commend us as a church just to say I do see lives changing. I hear about it all the time. And I would say that that's something that's been very evident among us. And so I want to applaud you and I want to say like what, what Paul would say. He says in Thessalonians when he's applauding them for the way they're, they're demonstrating their life by change, he would say, let's do so more and more. Let's continue to change and help each other change. Then there's a final evidence, the final evidence. This one's a little harder to decipher, but I hope to make it, make it clear. It's that people become a family of grace. Third evidence is people become a family of grace. During his time, during this time, some of the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide for their brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So here's what you find, evidence number three. You find that this Jerusalem church continues to care for the Antioch church. It's an estimated eight years of time before the gospel got from Jerusalem to Antioch. So now you've got this new church in Antioch that's just getting started among the Greeks, and it's kind of a mix of Hebrews and Greeks. And now you've got this church over here in Jerusalem that's eight more years mature, that's got the actual apostles, the people who had actually been face-to-face with Jesus. And one of the evidences that you see is that these people in Jerusalem would say, hey, this is a new church. Let's give them all the resources they need. Let's send them Barnabas. Let's bring in Saul. Let's send these prophets to take care of them. This was an ongoing effort to build up these new believers. And this is where you see this evidence of people seeing themselves as one family. Here you've got this one church saying, let's support what God's doing here and let's raise up disciples and leaders among them. I don't want a show of hands, but I would just wonder if there's any of you who would, would raise your hand, don't raise your hand, <laughs> but who would identify with the thought that you've never had someone actually older in the faith come alongside you to say, let me help you grow. Like that grieves me. Like what should be a normal evidence in the body of Christ is that mature believers, those who are much further along in their faith, will come along those side of those who are younger in the faith and say, let us lead you, let me teach you, let me walk with you and teach you how to grow. It's through this whole reason why we have our Midtown communities even more so, why we have our huddles, to put people in relationships with one another that can help each other move toward growth, because it's truly seeing ourselves as one family, and we've got older brothers and younger brothers and older sisters and younger sisters, and what we're commanded to do, those of us who are older and more mature, not just in age, but in spiritual maturity, is to care for those that are weaker and to care for those that are in need, and you see this happening because the Jerusalem church continues to send people and resources to develop this. They see themselves as a family of grace. But here's what I love. It goes both ways. Because they were pouring into them, but now when they hear the news about this famine, which if you go back in history, there were several famines that happened during the reign of this guy, Claudius. But now in turn, it goes backwards where they start to see themselves as one family with Jerusalem. And so now they're actually willing to give more money back to help the Jerusalem church during this famine. Isn't that beautiful? Now you've got the younger believers who are saying, man, we're so committed to this body. 
in the way that they've poured into us that we're now actually going to give back. And I would say one of the chief evidences, if we put back our little evidence cap, our little detective cap, one of the chief things that we should see among us as believers is generosity. Simple as that. Like we've been reading, if you've been following with us through the book of Acts, one of the chief ways that the church is described time and time again is meeting each other's needs, selling houses, selling everything that they have, putting it at the apostles' feet, giving generously to this new movement of God. And this generosity would be something that Barnabas would look at and say, yep, God's working here. This is very normal Christianity that these people who've been radically affected by the gospel now will give about their time, in this case, their money, to give back to the other church because they see themselves as a whole different family. And I love the two phrases that are used when it describes how they gave. It says, as each one able, it was able, and they decided to, decided to provide help. I love that as each is able because this is really the way that giving is taught about in the New Testament, that we're all supposed to give in accordance with what we've been given. That's just normal. One of the key verses when Paul's actually writing the Corinthians and talking to them about how they should be giving, he says that each one should give what he's decided in his own heart to give, not out of compulsion, but generously as God puts on his own heart to give. Like what we're supposed to do with our generosity is we're supposed to see the needs that are out there, go back and pray, and like it says that they did here, decide to provide help. Like this just wasn't like a spontaneous thing. This was here's in a need. Now let's go pray about it, and let's decide what we can do. Each individual and then collectively as a church of Antioch, let's decide what we can do to give back to this church that's been blessing us. And I love that, just the generosity that comes as an evidence that God is actually among them. I think about our church, and if I can use the language of decided to provide help, I think that about those in this church who decided to provide help by buying someone a car. I think of those who've decided to provide help at Helping Hand Home. I think of those who've decided to provide help by fostering or adopting. I think about those who've decided to provide help by sponsoring a World Vision child or giving to a nonprofit that aligns with your heart. I think about those who've decided to provide help by learning about the needs of this church and committing to online giving on a monthly basis. I think about those who've decided to provide help for our children's ministry during the summer months when the college students are gone. I think of those who've decided to provide help by giving childcare to couples in our church so they can go have a date night. I think of those who've decided to provide help by signing up for a meal chain that's taking care of someone while they're sick or taking care of someone after they've had a child. Like these evidences are among us, guys. And we can say that that means that God's grace is among us. We've put our cap on and we've seen that we do have people who are believing and people are who are new believing. In fact, I forgot to mention it. Uh, there was one new person who put his faith in Christ just this last week. That's what God's doing among us. Indeed. We are growing as a family. And we're caring for each other's needs. And we're, we're changing. By God's grace, he's changing us no matter where we start, our starting point was. And so I want to commend us. And I want to ask us like Paul to do so more and more. As we take communion, I want us to particularly think that this early church, when they actually took communion in the early church, they met in houses. And so it was really described as like a family meal, like this was part of what they did as a family. And so as we take the bread and take the cup today, anytime during these next worship songs, you can come to the front or the back, and then you can take on your own time as you feel led. 
I would encourage you to think of the thought of us being a spiritual family. One more evidence for us, the fact that you guys would so readily and easily move from a school to another school, and we're going to go back to another school. Like, I think a great evidence is that, man, we're going to stay committed to each other, and no matter where we're meeting, we're family, and let's continue to worship together. As you take communion today, reflect on this being your spiritual family. Let me pray, and let's worship and take communion. Father, we thank you that um, these evidences are among us. So we rejoice in that, and we do ask that you would do so more and more. Uh, Would more of our friends want to follow you with us? Even if they don't, would we love them just as you love us? And would you continue to change us no matter where we are? Let us be a people who are honest with our struggles and our our doubts, our fears, anxieties, and weaknesses. Let us be a, a culture that is full of grace and helps each other grow. And God, even this summer, I pray that you deepen our connection as family, that we would give and meet each other's needs and serve each other in every way. We thank you for this church in Antioch, this first Gentile church that we know then later became kind of the Gentile headquarters throughout the rest of the book of Acts. So we rejoice in what you've done and that gospel that went just 300 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch, has found its way all the way to our hearts. We're grateful, God. We pray this in your name. Amen.